Hello, this is Oro Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. So today, in the fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time, chapter 5 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is preaching along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He asks some fishermen, one named Simon, who owns the boat, if he can sit in the boat and teach the crowd from the, from, uh, from the fishing boat. Simon lets him do that. Then afterwards, Jesus says to Simon, now put out into deep water, put your nets out for a, a huge catch. Simon says, we've been fishing all night, we've got nothing, but he does it anyway. And they catch so many fish that it threatens to sink the boat. What's going on here? Because just last week in, the, in Nazareth, do you remember his big homily that bombed? Jesus was asked to do signs. Why didn't he do signs in Nazareth to these people that knew him so well? Why is he doing signs for these people that, according to the Gospel of Luke, don't know him at all? There's something going on in the Gospel of Luke, and it's about the 12 men, the institutional church, but it's also about the role of mysticism in the life of the individual Christian. And so, this is Oro Valley Catholic. Let's talk about the institutional church and the mystical life. Mysticism is an essential part of the Christian life. The institutional church carries the gospel from decade to decade, century to century, from millennia to millennia. We're now three millennia into the gospel. And it's the institutional church, pope, bishops, clergy, laity, that kept protected the integrity of the faith. As Christianity has uh, been riven by schisms, um, other religions just come and go, or they they morph completely out of any recognition as something associated with the historic Christ and the gospel. They become not institutional religion, but intuitional religion. An institutional religion is what Jesus does when he appoints 12 apostles. He institutes the structure of a church. Intuition is ancient corrosive effect of Gnosticism in the church. The idea of the interior conviction decides what's true. Not what I'm taught by the church, but what I believe what really should have been taught. It's where you get all the Gnostic Gospels from Thomas and Barnabas, where they just basically rewrite the story of Jesus to fit themselves. And that continues on to today. But Mysticism is the Christian response to intuition. If intuition is a com completely interior experience, well, mysticism is an interior experience also, but mysticism is formed and connected with the objective gospel, the sacraments, the moral life, and the life of the commun community of the church both at the parish level, in various religious orders, all the way that uh, church religious life is manifested. Mysticism is that creative explosion of the Holy Spirit in the life of hopefully every Christian as they respond 
as individuals into this communion of faith. The essence of mysticism is this deep inner sense, this conviction of God's presence, his transforming power in each of our lives. It, you know it's there because it increases your love of God, your love of neighbor, the love of the church. It teaches you how to grieve over the failures of the church, but still hope for and love and serve the church. God's gratuitous gift of the Holy Spirit, which we call sanctifying grace, is at the essence of the mystical experience. But there are special graces associated with mysticism, at least in some special cases. So visions, ecstasies, apparitions, uh, stigmata, levitation, bilocation, these are extraordinary supernatural phenomena associated with, uh, with mystics. However, every mystic would say it's not God. It's part of God's world. And at the end of the day, that's not what is important. What happens if you have a vision of the risen Christ and you have zero response? It, it's meaningless. So it tells you what the true meaning of mystical experience is. Mystical experience is about your passionate, intelligent, uh, faith-filled, uh, hope-filled, charity-filled uh, reaction to Christ. So who are some famous mystics from our own century? How about Padre Pio and his stigmata and his uh, bilocations? Um, St. Therese of Lisieux, um, there was this deep, mystical, transformative experience she talked about in her story of a soul. It was not accompanied by any kind of supernatural phenomena during her life. But after her life, the uh, witnesses of people for whom she has interceded are just legendary. I count myself amongst them. Uh, Blessed Solanus Casey, the Capuchin from Detroit, I went to a seminary um, with a Capuchin priest who recounted the levitation of uh, Solanus Casey while playing his uh, violin in front of the Blessed Eucharist. These kinds of supernatural phenomena seem incredible to pure materialists. But when you are committed to follow a man who died on the cross and rose from the dead, some of this other stuff is just, you know, in for a nickel, in for a dime uh, is the way to think about it. But the key is, is that the resurrection is of fundamental importance. Whether or not Solanus Casey levitated or St. Bernadette Subaru saw Mary at Lourdes, um, these things are not fundamentally important about Christianity. The other thing about mysticism in the life of the believer is the connection between mysticism and suffering. And so, for instance, um, famous uh, stigmatist, uh, St. Francis, a great mystic, one of the earliest stigmatists. And, but it's not just the exterior wounds which can become apparent. For the mystic, it's the interior wound. So John of the Cross talked about the dark night of the soul. It's when 
emotions um, seem to be so suppressed, it almost sounds like depression when you read about it, except it's animated by such a passionate love for Christ and a desire to serve. And that's why John of the Cross would talk about the dark night of the soul as a purgative event. You know, in some sense, every mystic participates in a very limited way in the beatific vision. The beatific vision is the blessed vision of the face of, of Christ, of, of the face of God. And so that the stories about the dark night of the soul may well be the, the most uh, tangible understanding of what the purgative path is like, uh, what purgatory uh, may await for each of us. Um, another one is Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. Teresa of Calcutta, um, and her famous dryness, um, in the, especially the last years of her life, when uh, you know, you've talked to people who met her, just the sense of holiness was so palpable about her. But her interior experience uh, was this sense of this deep hunger for Christ. And so uh, mysticism is a foretaste of the beatific vision, a foretaste of the purgative role uh, and activity of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. But this essence is what I want you to take home with you. The idea that a mystical experience is transformative. The exterior phenomena is not what is important. Um, it's the effect it has on the soul of the person. You know, um, St. Paul was a mystic, St. Paul um, the Apostle, and he talked about his own experience in, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. This idea of even with all of his suffering, stretching always forward, growing. Gregory of Nyssa picked up on it, but this is what St. Paul said. It's not that I have already taken hold of it or have already attained perfect maturity, but I continue my pursuit in hope that I may possess it since I have indeed been taken possession of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I for my part do not consider myself to have taken possession. Just one thing, forgetting what lies behind, but straining forward to what lies ahead. I continue my pursuit toward the goal, the prize of God's upward calling in Christ Jesus. Let us then who are perfectly mature, he says that in quotes, or at least that's the way it's, done in the English translation. Adopt this attitude. And if you have a different attitude, this too God will reveal to you only with regard to what we have attained. Continue on the same course, constantly growing. You know, um, mysticism uh, after the Reformation um, kind of took a hit. Um, the Beguines, the 13th century, a lot of them were women. And they proclaim their interior experience as being uh, transformative and important. And, you know, after, that was before the Reformation, the Beguines. But the problem of interior experience is its ability 
uh, to grate against church authority. A really good example is all the controversies surrounding Garabandal in Spain. But Meister Eckhart, who was very influenced by the uh, Beguines, was also uh, pitted against church authority. Because there is this inherent um, tension and whether you call it the mystical experience or the intuitional experience, this inherent tension between authority in the institutional church and the personal experience of Christ, uh, the personal experience of God. When you disconnect completely from the institutional church, which is what is happening in our culture, the intuitional experience of the Holy Spirit or whatever spirit takes you off um, into some pretty bizarre uh, understandings of, uh, of Christ and the Gospels. You know, um, this is always this tension between the mystical uh, and the institutional, the uh, tension that um, just purely intuitional uh, experiences of God divorced from the objective criteria of the gospel and the tradition and the authority of the church. This has been with us for three centuries, and our own experience in our own time is just part of this tension where occasionally there's just a break and people just go flying off into, I'll just say, the darkness. Um, because when you lose your objective bearings, there's a problem. And this is where the the, the gospel is today. And so think about the call of St. Peter, who is at the heart of the institutional church, and think about the miracle, and think about the interior transformation that St. Peter is going through as really the image of what the faithful are looking for as they follow Christ, both an experience of the sacraments and the beauty of the church and their own interior transformation. And it's not an easy story listening to St. Peter about St. Peter or any of the apostles, but that's where we're gonna turn now. Now here's the gospel from the fifth chapter of Luke that's the gospel for the fifth Sunday of ordinary time. While the crowd was pressing in on Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats there alongside the lake. The fishermen had disembarked and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, he asked him to put out a short distance from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. After he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon said in reply, Master, we've worked hard all night and have caught nothing, but your command I will lower the nets. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets were tearing. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come to help them. They came and filled both boats so that the boats were in danger of sinking. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the knees of Jesus and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For astonishment at the catch of fish they had made seized him and all those with him. And likewise, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. 
So that's it. Uh, they walk away from families and work and follow Jesus because of a couple of fish. Obviously, this is the tension between this exterior sign of Jesus' teaching, um, the frustration they felt, this fulfillment of this amazing catch of fish that twisted, turned, opened up, broke open, cracked something inside of St. Peter. At play in this story is the objective encounter with God and the, in, the interior transformation of the person. You know, the gospel stories are not these comprehensive video, videographies where there's someone with a video camera following them around and taking notes. You know, there's this show, The Chosen, if you've watched it. There's some things I love about Jonathan Rumi's uh, uh, presentation of the character of Jesus. But there's also some stuff in there that's just marked by this kind of uh, very narrow Protestant idea. And so, for instance, in the last version that I saw, which has been a while, um, John the Apostle is following around Jesus as he's doing things, and he's taking notes as if that's what the gospel is. Because if you look at all of this, there's nobody taking notes. There are people who really don't understand what the significance of this or what is happening because they're going through a period of purification. It really is after the resurrection when the dime finally drops and they understood who they had been walking with for those three years. You know, to think about it like that is to understand the prophetic call. So did you happen to, uh, if you go to Mass and you listen to the first reading, which is from the prophet um, Isaiah, and it's about the call of Isaiah. And I'm going to read it to you because it's about a prophetic call. And we have it in the readings because we compare the call of the prophet Isaiah to the call of St. Peter. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne with the train of his garment filling the temple. Seraphim were stationed above. Seraphim literally means the fiery ones. They're the angels closest to God's throne. They cried out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is filled with his glory. This is where we get the Sanctus at Mass. So at the sound of that cry, the frame of the door shook and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am doomed. Fearful response, just like St. Peter. For I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, holding an ember that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Pause there. So the seraphim is the fiery one. They're right next to God's throne, and they're made of fire themselves. But God is so blazing hot, they have to get a tong to handle an ember from the fire that is God. You see what's being said here? No creature approaches God on equal terms. And then here's what the fiery one, the seraphim, does to Isaiah. He touched my mouth with it and said, See now that this has touched your lips. Your wickedness is removed, your sin purged. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, I said. Send me. 
Well, the story the way Luke tells it is a faith-filled story about this real experience that St. Peter had. But you know what? It's not the only way the story of the call of St. Peter is told. So here is how St. Peter was called in John chapter 1. We're going to talk about the two stories. So if you turn to John chapter 1, remember John the Baptist is baptizing, and then here's what it said. John said that he was not the Messiah, that the one that was coming, he was unworthy to even uh, take off his sandals. But here's what, what it says. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Now listen to this part. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. The other guy is never identified in the gospel, though people say it's, it's John. But Andrew is the only one identified. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah. Then he brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter, which means rock. The next day he decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Number one point. Because fathers of the church thought John, who was a witness to this, provided real historical information. That the idea was that Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist who told them to follow Jesus. And so they started bringing their family members. And so they brought uh, Simon to him. And that is where Jesus calls him Cephas. Remember, it's later in Matthew's gospel. But that the idea of it all is, is that it isn't that Jesus just comes out of nowhere and calls Simon Peter like he didn't even know who he was. If you know the rest of the story, this whole story we're told in Luke 5 is probably set up because Andrew, John the Baptist, and Peter, John, uh, Philip, these guys already all knew each other and knew who Jesus was. And so when Jesus asked to use the boat, okay, they know he's the teacher and that John the Baptist vouches for him. When he tells him to put out into deep water, well, they believe these, these men are from God. And when they make this abundant catch, this is the mystical experience. Why don't they just say, hey, I've been rewarded by God. I'm going to go sell all this stuff and make some money. No, it was a life-changing experience for him. See, mysticism is being able to read the signs of the time. Mysticism is about the experience of living and seeing God present. It's understanding when a prayer has been answered, especially when the answer maybe isn't what you thought it was going to be. That's a mystical experience. 
That's why every Christian is called to be a mystic. Now, let's pull this together in the final part of Oral Valley Catholic and talk about what's happening in our own culture and the importance of Catholic mysticism lived by everybody who listens to this podcast. In last week's Oral Valley uh, Catholic podcast, I talked about my love for St. Therese of Lisieux, who is a great image and example of a modern mystic. And so here's an example of a mystical experience she had. She's just a little girl, and she's getting to be a bigger girl. She comes home. It's Christmas Eve. They've been to Mass, and she's looking forward to opening her gifts. And as she's running upstairs, she hears her dad say, I hope this is the last time we have to go through all of this. Therese can be such a baby about these things. And so Therese said she heard that, and I'm paraphrasing the whole story, but she said that she heard that and she knew she had a choice to make. She could burst into tears, run in and accuse her dad with one angry angry glance, and she'd be celebrating Christmas as often as she could because she was the baby of the family, and her dad loved her and apparently spoiled her. But she said it was, the first, it was the moment of conversion in her life because she chose to go upstairs, put her coat away, put her, take her galoshes off, and go down and celebrate her last Christmas as a child. Mystical experience because she said she gave herself to Christ. It's this moment of transformation where she can see she's gone from one mode of being to another. That story has stuck with me for the, since I read that uh, back in my 30s uh, because it became my doorway to understanding what it means to be a mystic. Um, I'm not likely to see an apparition of our Blessed Lady. Um, I'm not going to be a stigmatist. I have never levitated, though I have been occasionally lightheaded. But uh, like you, a, a lot of these extraordinary phenomena are just not part of my personal experience. But the sense of, pers- of personal transformations and moments of change in my life. Therese is writing this book as she's dying, looking back on her life and seeing it more clearly. Each of us in prayer can look back on our lives and see much more clearly how it is that God was working in our life and that it took us somewhere to a deeper conversion of Christ. What if all you really ever have as a mystical experience is a warm, fuzzy feeling, and then they go away? And so 10 years after your last warm, fuzzy feeling, you have to try to do something else to get that feeling back. Lots of Christians think like that, that that's what mystical experience is, uh, what uh, mystical theology would call consolations, and consolations are nice. But if you look at a consolation, that warm, fuzzy feeling, and I don't mean to make something light of these things, that's not the point. They are like levitation or stigmata. These are gifts but they're really not what mysticism is about. Mysticism is about this interior transformation before Christ, when, like St. Peter, you can fall on your knees and say, depart from me, 
for I am a sinful man. I am a sinful woman. And a moment of transformation has happened in your life and you follow Christ. This is the link between the gospel preached in the institutional church and your experience of responding and having this personal experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the dominant religions, especially amongst the young in our culture, is the spiritual but not religious. And that is really what I refer to when we talk about inst intuitional religion. The idea that religion is consolation, or religion makes me feel good. When you buy special products, and when you smell this camel, uh, candle, aromatherapy, um, that you are at peace. Um, it's like saying I smoke marijuana and I experience God. It's confusing God with this emotional experience that has no intellectual content to it because God's never told you anything about himself that was not publicly revealed to the church. To the extent that your religious experience is just chasing the next emotional consolation, the next moment of peace, you are like a leaf blowing in the wind. And the long three millennial history of the church is that leaves blowing in the wind really just end up getting burned in the fire. Because the spiritual but not religious can fall into a various occult practices, tarot cards, palm reading. They seem harmless, but they're trying to have knowledge that doesn't belong to human beings. God has told us what we need to know. And in humility, which is the great virtue of St. Therese, that is what opens us up to true understanding in life. Because if we try to know what we are not called to know, it's trying to substitute facts, information, something that's solid for this relationship that's always calling us to stretch forward to and trust in God. Oh, the spiritual but not religious takes weird forms. Fan, fan literature about Harry Potter, um, the sense of grievance that gives rise to so much of this strange, disconnected, quote, social justice, end quote, um, activity. But if you don't know what justice is, how can you actually talk about social justice? There has to be some objective criteria that we're all tied into. And that objective criteria comes to us through from the institution of the church um, as it preaches the gospel. And it's open to the understanding and wisdom of people. So there you have it. Um, the call of St. Peter, there's a lot in that story. Isaiah was purged because a coal touched his lips. St. Peter was purged throughout his life because he followed Christ. This is our path. God bless you. See you next week on Oral Valley Catholic.